in the Sanskrit, um, which are speaking about love and compassion and so forth. And will tonight, a little bit of a sampler, since I didn't do this whole series of talks. Um, And it seems particularly fitting in this season of um, Christmas and Kwanzaa and Hanukkah and I think Ramadan was earlier this year, but in the winter solstice coming up and the turning of the light. And this last week I've been I've been actually quite busy, um, including involved in some activist things, working um, to help organize some of the um, demonstrations to, for um, the monks and nuns and people of Burma trying to organize a trip to uh, the Middle East going in January to Israel and to West Bank and Palestine and um, so and some political things I've been doing and kind of thinking about the inner and the outer uh, of spiritual life because we as human beings are incarnated, we're born here with a fundamentally good heart and you know this when you see little children. There's this beauty and innocence and generosity um, that's there. And then when we look more collectively at the difficulties in the world, the continuing problems of warfare and racism and environmental destruction and so forth, um, I think there, there must be some way that we could live from the goodness of our hearts collectively um, and it's really, in a certain way, a, a pressing and universal problem. So this poem from Alison Luderman in uh, Oakland, one of my favorite local poets, she writes, Don't tell anyone, but even as a good Jewish girl, I love Jesus. I love, I love his dark Semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and the prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's just like that Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. It's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble. But oh, Jesus seems to come naturally. I just don't want to die saying, oh, shit. I want to die like a llama, lie on my right side, turn my head in the direction of my next birth. I know I'd have to meditate a lot to do this well, and let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus seems so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible with the actual people around you. But then, (laughs) if you really look, you realize, what else is there to do? What else is there to do? The Buddhist texts begin, some of the Buddhist texts, with this wonderful greeting, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. Remember your capacity to love, to open, to care for this life, this incarnation that you've been born into, to see what's possible a beauty that is true for your own heart and to bring it to flower. Now, I had a friend who used to come and sit here at Spirit Rock. I haven't seen him for quite a few years. His name is Milton Friedman, um, the same as a very famous, perhaps Nobel Prize winning, I'm pretty sure, economist from the University of Chicago. And this fellow, Milton Friedman, my friend, um, was a speechwriter in Washington um, he worked for a number of senators, and he was also a speechwriter in the White House, I think, during Jimmy Carter's administration. And um, it was during Jimmy Carter's administration, there was some great financial difficulties in the markets. Inflation was really high, and my friend Milton Friedman was working at the White House at that time. And one day he got a call from the treasurer and financial director of this huge um, umbrella organization from one of the largest church groups in America. Um, And this person called and said, is this Milton Friedman? And he said, it is. And he said, listen, um, I want to introduce myself, and I work for this huge umbrella organization, you know, the the finances of these churches in America. And um, 
it's really tough economically out there and I don't quite know what to do and we have these billions of dollars that we have to invest in the right way and so forth and do you have any suggestions for us? And my friend Milton Friedman said, have you considered giving it to the poor? (laughs) (laughs) To which the person on the other end of the line with kind of a shocked voice said, is this the real Milton Friedman? (laughs) And my friend um, Milton replied, "Um, is this the real church? He had a good mind, Milton. He had good wit. Um, but it really is a question for our time. Here we are, and it's not just, I mean, that dialogue is funny, you know, but it's, there's also some deeper truth in it. What is possible for us as human beings, not for the Buddha in India, but the Buddha within ourselves? What is the awakened heart? And what the Buddhist teachings and meditation and all the things that um, I have studied and learned point to is that we each have a capacity for love and compassion, generosity, forgiveness. We each have within this life that we've been given these wonderful qualities. Uh, Luminous, says the Buddha, is this heart and mind when... We look into it when we're not lost in the small sense of self or the body of fear. You know what I mean by that, that place where you get frightened and contracted and so forth. When we're not identified in that way and we remember who we really are born into this human incarnation for a time, what matters and what's possible for us. And in some way we can develop these qualities, but in another more fundamental way, They are our true nature. And when the stuff that gets in the way of them is released, um, they shine. My my inspiration in many ways in this, one of the teachers that I studied with for a long time was the Cambodian monk named Gosananda, Maha Gosananda, um, who was this uh, great Buddhist scholar. I met him. We lived together in forest monasteries in Thailand during the Cambodian Holocaust when almost a third of the people in Cambodia were killed, including 18 of the 20 people in his extended family and 57,000 of the 60,000 monks and nuns in this great kind of Khmer Rouge communist purge of everyone who was educated to start anew. Um, And he... Um, was unlike many of the great spiritual masters of Asia that I studied with. He didn't make big temples, although there were dozens and dozens of temples that functioned in his name. But he didn't stay there. And this is a... He died this year, and this was a really beautiful obituary in The Economist magazine. said he didn't stay at his temples, even though they honored him. He would be far away walking... And where he walked was often remote, neither safe nor quiet. He would tread a little bird-like man with hands folded and head bowed along the narrow paths that threaded through the jungle forests of central Cambodia. Care was necessary, for the ground had been sown with landmines up to the edge of the trail. And he would walk, and he did this for 15 years through the war zones, bringing people back to their villages who were refugees, chanting loving-kindness the whole way. And sometimes they'd be shot at and grenades would be sent and you know thrown at them and so forth and they would stop and do some more chanting. Um, and, you know, he was an amazing person. He spoke 15 languages. He was a polymath, a great intellectual and scholar. But that wasn't what mattered to him. What mattered was love. And wherever he went, he would hand out tens of thousands of copies of the Sutra on Loving-Kindness from the Buddha. On his walks, the message remained the same. There was no complication. The work, he said, would be slow, step by loving step, as he liked to say, and it would continue as long as the Cambodians felt divided from each other and brutalized by their past. After 1980, he was made much of. He represented the Cambodian government in exile at the United Nations, 
was influential in the peace talks. He was made the supreme patriarch of all of Cambodia. Several times he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He founded more than 50 temples around the world. Sometimes he spoke there, but his first priority lay elsewhere. It was to appear bird-like out of the Cambodian forest, to surprise a man digging or a woman washing, to remind them that the power of love was stronger than the forces of history, and then to move on, to chant to them, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he would chant this over and over to people whose hearts were broken and lives were torn apart and say, this is the only way you can redeem yourself and redeem your children and redeem this land. And what was beautiful about being with Gosananda is that he didn't feel like that was special or unique to him or that you had to be some great person to do it. Everybody he met, he talked to in the same straightforward, simple way and said, you know, love is possible for you. It really is. And you'd hear him and you'd believe it. You, basically, you could feel it. I think it's the, you know, neurologically, it's the mirror neurons, if you want to study modern neuroscience, that, that actually reflect um, when we are in the presence of another. Our whole nervous system actually picks up what's happening with that other person. So the divine abodes, says the Buddha, the abodes of the gods um, is the literal translation, but really it's the awakened heart or loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity or peace. And loving kindness, I'll go through them each tonight for a bit. Loving kindness is said is like the the rain that falls on all things, the just and the unjust, equally without discrimination. That love, when it grows within our heart, has a quality of nurturance and moisture and opening and, and sweetness and constancy to it. It's really an expression of the heart that's unencumbered by fear. And um, when the Buddha first taught loving-kindness in the old stories as a meditation practice. It was because some of his early monks and nuns went off to meditate in these caves in a deep, dark forest and got quite frightened by the wild animals and the spirits or ghosts or whatever and came running back and saying, it's too scary to practice there, we need some protection practice. And the Buddha said, I will give you the great protection. And this great protection was the Uh, teachings and the offering of loving-kindness for all beings. Um, Put away all encumbrances of heart, all fears, and let your heart full of love pervade one quarter of the world and so too the second and the third and the fourth. The whole world above, below, and around pervade and extend a love-filled thought and feeling Abounding, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, free from hatred and ill will, blessing all that it touches. And there's this whole long systematic practice. And if you do it, it's for crawling things and thick and thin things and beings far and near and all males and all females and um, those who are known and unknown and beings with no legs and two legs and four legs and many legs and beings to the north and the south and the east and the west and those who are young and those who are old, and those who are suffering and those who are causing suffering. They need the love, too, to be reawakened. And those who are happy and those who are causing happiness. Every single being. And you feel it when you go in the monasteries, like the forest monasteries. I love this little poem. A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. You know? This is from Lloyd Reynolds, a great master calligrapher in America. There is this sensitivity to life itself that every being is worthy of love or respect. And so it was taught in this formal practice when there was the sense of danger. But our knowing about love ennobles us. 
It allows us to touch what we have, allows us to touch with love what we have touched with fear. Because that's really the opposite of love, is fear. And you know it because we're in this time in our culture right now where there's a lot of fear-mongering in all kinds of ways. Immigration or, you know, Muslims or all this kind of stuff that's, that's completely um, designed somehow to scare you as if it were true. The approach of love and respect, says Martin Luther King, does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know that they had. And when it finally reaches their opponent, opponents, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. And there's something not only beautiful but powerful and ennobling when we trust more and more the spirit of love. Beside with, in the end, when you look really what matters, if you ask somebody at the end of life, you have the privilege to be with someone who's dying consciously. The questions people ask are really very simple ones, not very many. Did I love well? Did I love this life and what was given to me? Maybe did I live fully in some way? Did I give myself to it? Those kind of questions are all that really matters. And then people say, well, okay, it's nice to hear about this, but it's not very easy, as that you know, first poem said. You know, what about the people around you? And that's why, um, in addition to the understanding that we each have this great capacity to love within us, every one of us, that also there are practices to reawaken it. So this story, my friend Sharon Salzberg, colleague, was teaching a day of metta, loving-kindness practice, in Oakland at Jerry Brown's We the People. She said, I try to have participants do walking meditation on the city streets so they can practice their loving-kindness with whoever comes by. One woman was having a big struggle with this loving-kindness practice. It felt so dry No warm feelings would come, and she wanted them. And I told her it was more like planting seeds. You just plant seeds, and you trust something will grow. During the next walking period, she chose to walk on the train platform across the street at Jack London Station. As she did, a train pulled in. She tried her metta. One of the people who got off was a man in a suit, obviously hurried, distracted, unaware. She noticed herself judging him. He looked so uptight. Then she judged herself. See, I'm just no good at this loving-kindness stuff. (laughs) But she took a breath and continued wishing him well. And then he walked down the long train platform right up to her and said, Excuse me, ma'am, this may sound strange. I've never done this before in my life, but I'm facing a really bad situation, and you seem to be such a kind and peaceful person, and I'd just like to ask if you would pray for me. And she did. So there's something that we know in modern psychology, but was known in ancient psychology, and the Buddha, and really is innate to us, that where we turn our attention to what we give our attention, um, uh, that place will flower, will blossom, will grow. And if we give our attention to love, it grows. If we practice it, we remind ourselves and our capacity becomes stronger. And it's not that you won't have setbacks like that woman and feel that it's difficult. And, you know, sometimes the closer it gets to us, the more difficult. I mean, I remember this Jules Pfeiffer cartoon where there's a, um, a man standing with his arms crossed like this in the corner, kind of pulled back in the corner, and a woman on her knees with her arms outstretched saying, but I love you. And his comment is, don't you threaten me, you know? (laughs) If there's no enemy within, it says in the Dhammapada, then the enemy outside 
can do us no real harm. And it's an amazing thing to walk through the world as Mahagosananda did, um, feeling the stream of love, the possibility of love, the connection of love. And there are all these blessings if one does the practice of loving kindness. It said you fall asleep easily and you waken contented and people will love you and angels and devas will love you and there's a whole great list of things. Animals will love you as you grow, but elephants will bow to you slightly as you go by. Says it, I don't know. You could try it in the zoo something like that, see if it works. But, you know, you can try it. I had a friend who started to do hospice work. She was doing hospice work and she started to just really, really fall in love with the people she was working with who were dying. And I said to her, do you think that's because they're so vulnerable and open and you make such a deep connection? She said, yeah, but I don't think that's the real reason. She said, that's a piece of it. She said, but because I think what really is happening is that I do metta practice for them several times a day, even when I'm not with them. I think of them there and people I'm tending who are near the end of life. And I just see them in that way. And so I go back there and we don't even have to say anything. I enter the room and it just kind of lights up because I've learned to love them. And there's this beautiful capacity that you have, that each person has, to make your heart a a war-free zone. You know, I mean, we look at all the politics and all that stuff. This is the place that it starts with this very simple intention to cultivate the garden of the heart. Oscar Wilde says, Who being loved is poor? So, a, a Christmas story for you. Our meal came... Oh, no, wrong page. Here we go. It was uh, Sunday, Christmas. Our family had spent the holiday in San Francisco with my husband's parents. In order for us to be back at work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles home to Los Angeles during Christmas Day. It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids it can be 14-hour endurance test. When we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, a little metropolis of six gas stations, and it was into one of the three diners there that the four of us trooped, road-weary, saddle-sore. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked around the room. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everybody else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee, Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray. Hi there! His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn, baggy pants, a spindly body, toes that poked out of old shoes, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric, hair uncombed, unwashed, unbearable, whiskers too short to be called a beard. I was too far away to smell him, but he knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi there, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed the waitress's eyebrows shoot to their foreheads. Several people nearby, This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, Why me under my breath? been a long day. Our meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, do you know patty cake? boy. Do you know peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows peekaboo. <laughs> Nobody else thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk and a definite disturbance and I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of his skid row bum. 
Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. So I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or my baby, and I headed toward the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him. And as I did so, Eric, all the while with his eyes riveted on his new best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in the baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, Would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer, since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the man's. And suddenly a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder, and the man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding voice, Now you take proper care of this baby. And somehow I managed, I will from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. And I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, My God, don't let me forget. Please don't let me forget. So it's an amazing thing when we can touch what we've touched with fear, with love. And it's possible. It doesn't mean that you have to put yourself at risk in the world um, or be foolish. I don't mean that. Um, But that's really different than love. That's just being discriminating, taking care of the circumstances of your life. But to love is a power that's really unshakable and unstoppable. And as Meher Baba said, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's there for you. And what the teachings of the Buddha offer to us is this wonderful reminder that it is our birthright and that we can offer it to ourselves, which is a huge thing, and many people have a lot of trouble with. Well-wishing of love for yourself. All the kind of unworthiness and self-hatred in our culture and judgment. And we can offer it to one another and practice it. To me, that's the power of one person, of Gandhi or Buddha or Christ, one clear person who isn't vulnerable. This is Ram Dass. Don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway of love, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon look like children's toys. And it is because it's really like gravity. It's that which connects us all. It's the fundamental web of life. Um, And when we meditate, we quiet the mind, we open the heart, and we remember what we're here for and who we are. And it's just that simple. And, you know, the best place to learn love, of course, is things that are difficult. (laughs) That's where you learn anything, pretty much. To love your crooked neighbor, says Auden, the poet, W.H. Auden, to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. That was his line. You know, and then everything lightens up. It does. And when you do the systematic metta practice, which we've done here many nights and so forth, you start with easy people and people you love and that which opens your heart and then, you know, friends and then neutral people. And gradually you learn to include difficult people. 
not even because you like them that much. You may hate them maybe still, but it's okay. <laughs> but because the minute you picture them and, and you're doing your loving kindness, your heart closes. It shrivels up. I hate that person. I'm never going to love them. Not somebody like that, you know. And then you realize it's just not worth it. It's too painful to close your heart. And so you say, okay, even you I'll love a little bit, you know. <laughs> and then you realize you can do it. And it changes, not only does it change you, but it changes your world. So this is the first of these four. I don't even know I'll get through them tonight, but we'll go wherever we go. <laughs> this is the first of these four reminders of the awakened heart that is your own Buddha nature. The second one is compassion, which arises when love meets pain. Love is the kind of natural openness of the heart. And when love encounters that which is difficult or painful, it turns into the quivering of the heart, which is called (coughs) compassion. Overcome any bitterness, say the Sufis, because you are not up to the magnitude of pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the sorrows of the world in her heart, we are each endowed with a certain measure of this cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. And what's true is that we have the capacity to meet the sorrows of the world with compassion as we do to meet the beauty of the world with love. The great heart of a Buddha is within you. And we get afraid that the heart isn't big enough, you know, that we don't have, that we'll get overwhelmed. But it is. I took this article out of the uh, Sunday Times last week, maybe. It was the chicken and rice man. I don't know if anybody saw it. Seven in the morning until seven at night, weary-looking man dressed in threadbare jackets um, would watch, scan each passing car in the hope that someone would offer them work for a hard, grueling 10-hour construction job. We come here for work, said one 40-year-old Ecuadorian man. He said he's sometimes gone days without eating, but for the past three months he's eaten at least one hot meal a day, thanks to a former immigrant who, with the help of his mother, has become a guardian angel for these workers. His man's name is Jorge Munoz, an elfin 43-year-old. And every night around 9.30, he arrives at the intersection um, with enough home-cooked fare to feed the dozens of day laborers who congregate there. Jorge is here. Doesn't matter, rain, thunderstorm, lightning... He'd do that from his goodwill, you know, someone said. Now, the relationship between Mr. Munoz and many of the men he feeds is really personal. Uribe, you want more coffee, he says. Hey, Simon, you want seconds of this pasta? In a way, Mr. Munoz seems to need these men as much as they need him. His unofficial meal program gives meaning and focus to his life. The operation is financed mainly from his $600 a week job driving a school bus, and all the cooking is done with his and his mother's help in a small house with gray siding where he lives. I know these people are waiting for me, he said, and I worry about them. You have to see them smile, man. That's the way I get paid. That's the way I get paid. And, of course, you hear a story like that, and then you could also use it to... um, Beat yourself if you're into that, those of you who like masochism, it's a fine thing, Um, and say, well, you know, he's doing that, you know, and what am I doing? Um, I remember when Ramdas was teaching a class in Oakland on service and bodhisattva, and people were given, it was a series of many weeks, people were given practices and things to do. Um, to pay attention to their connection with the suffering of the world and their fear of it or their capacity to be present for it. And one woman raised her hand in the class at one point and she said that she'd really learned something. She said, every day 
um, when I go to work, um, for many, many months, there's a homeless guy that sits on my way to the BART, and I've been putting a quarter in his cup. Um, but I realized since I started taking this class that I never really look at him, that I never look him in the eye. And then she said, so I began to pay attention. And all of a sudden, I realized why. I was afraid if I ever really looked him in the eye that the next thing that would happen would be that he would be sleeping on my living room couch. And I didn't know what to do with that. And all of a sudden, her vulnerability and her honesty made the whole room of a thousand people begin to say, well, what is right and what are our boundaries and what should we do? Because it's not just the chicken rice man in New York. It's our human dilemma. And what's true about compassion, about the circle of compassion, is that it's only complete if it includes yourself. We get really confused thinking, okay, I have to be compassionate for that poor person there who's suffering a lot. Oh, such pity for that person. But that's not the circle of compassion. The real meaning of compassion also has to include one other person. Guess who? Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, you know. If it's for them and not for oneself, it's not really compassion. It's something else, you know, and we could go into that. But genuine compassion includes the care for this one. You can search the tenfold universe, says the Buddha, and not find a single person more worthy of love and care than the one seated right here in your own body. So this one and that one. And we each have to find our way, our own balance. But I tell you, it is as natural to us as breathing. I mean, if we're not afraid, and we have to all find our own way and our own balance, it's natural to care. It just is. It's built in. It is your true nature. So my favorite... um, kindergarten teacher in the whole world um, is a woman named Peggy. And um, Peggy said, told me this story um, some years ago, just at the beginning of the Iraq, the latest Iraq war, this one that we're in. Um, She said that um, just around the beginning of that war, um, her kids were out on the playground and there were some low-flying military planes that came over because there was this whole movement of positioning equipment and all of those things at the beginning of that war to the Middle East. Um, And because they were low-flying and loud and not the usual kind of airplanes kids see, her kindergartners came running back in and they were really frightened by these planes. And they'd been seeing on television and talking to their parents about war is coming and things like that. And they said, these look like warplanes, are they? And Peggy said, yes. And what are they? Well, they're, you know, they're planes with materials and uh, weapons and bombs and various things that they're bringing there. Um, and so the kids were very interested. And then they, they, one of the kids asked Peggy, um, well, are there kids like us in Iraq? And Peggy said, Yes. And then the mother child said, well, well, they don't, they wouldn't bomb there then, would they? And Peggy said, well, they might. And then the other kid said, well, then they must not know the children are there. They must not know this. We have to let them know. And so they took their recess period and they went out in the playground and they made this great big sign, you know, that could be seen from the air. Uh, children in Iraq, they made a big picture of a child so that the pilots could see it. They must not know that there are children there. When you study um, Western psychology and the development of humanistic and transpersonal psychology, one of the great fathers of this is um, Abraham Maslow. And he made what was called a pyramid of needs. At the bottom was food and shelter and then social needs and creative needs and at the top was spiritual needs. And even he understood at the end of his life that he'd gotten it kind of he didn't have the order exactly right. Because the truth is that we need love and compassion as much as we need food and air. Um, And you don't have to have food and shelter and social needs and creative needs um, met 
in order to love or care for someone. That sometimes in some of the worst circumstances of the world, there is um, at the same time um, an outpouring of care. Um, Viktor Frankl, the father of logotherapy, said that we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but their very existence proves the greatest of all human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit no matter what the circumstances. So we talk about metta and loving kindness, and again, one of the problems is that then we make a new ideal about it, and we get very idealistic. We can judge ourselves and things like that. Um, One of the great local teachers that helps put things in perspective is a man named David Roach. And David Roach is the founder of the Church of 80% Sincerity. (laughs) He said 80% is pretty good for humanity. He said if you could be 80% compassionate, 80% wise, 80% celibate, you know, it's actually pretty good. And David goes around teaching, and what's interesting about David is that he has a profoundly disfigured face. He was born with part of his jaw missing. Um, And he goes into middle schools, sometimes high schools, but more than that, middle schools, to talk to kids and talk to them about trusting the reality of unconditioned love. But, of course, he also acknowledges that it has a shelf life of about 10 seconds. Darling, I'll love you till the end of dinner, he says. He's got a very good wit. And he's wise, and he's funny, and sometimes he brings his, his, this beautiful woman he's married to with him, and he says, look at me. He said, here I am, the worst thing that you can imagine, right? You know, what you look, what if I were deformed like this? You know, and the truth is that most teenagers think they are deformed. You know, they think that there's something wrong with their bodies or their faces or something like that. And here is like the worst thing. And he gets them to laugh, to recognize their self-pity and their fears. And there comes a kind of relief just to be human with all our flaws. And outwardly, he's difficult to look at, you know, and disfigured. And in a certain way, people say, oh, this is horrible. And inwardly, there is this shining, humorous, Um, joyful, liberated spirit, this great beauty in him. And by the end of his talk, he says, okay, look at me now. You know, you couldn't even look at me when I came in. How do I look to you now? I look different, don't I? This whole outpouring, of course, because they see him. They see who he is behind all of that. And that's really more our human situation. It's not about making some great new ideal. It's taking the unique, particular life that you have and holding your life with compassion and then seeing the lives of those around you and the circles that go beyond that. And every human life has its measure of sorrows and its struggle, every one. And remembering that it's possible to breathe and open and expand the capacity of heart to touch it all, to hold it all, from your Buddha nature, from this great heart of compassion. And the difficulties, they are as much our teachers as anything. Elie Wiesel, Nobel Prize winner, says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading it, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So to be free, meditation, sit with joys and sorrows and pleasure and pain and all of the fabric of our humanity, to be free is to find this seat of open-heartedness and compassion for the incarnation on this earth. Because nobody... Not a single person doesn't have pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. It happens for us all. It's woven into life, birth and death. 
And this is our humanity. Here you are. How do you treat it? So there's loving kindness, there's compassion, and there's not very many minutes left, but we'll talk a little bit about the other two, which are joy and equanimity or peace. Compassion and suffering are not the end of the story. There is also a tremendous importance in spiritual practice on joy. And joy in yourself and then the sympathetic joy and the happiness of others. And you know, you sit and the comparing mind comes and it says, well, how about this and that and so forth. I, I like to tell that little cartoon. You know, people make a grim duty out of meditation. Oh, okay, I'm going to meditate and make myself better. Forget it, you know. You're just going to be yourself. That you're, It's like looking in the mirror. You get who you are. And you could love, but you're not going to change yourself very much. It doesn't have you go to the gym and go to therapy and all that stuff. You are, you have this incarnation, you know, get with the program. It's, it's how it is. Um, but you could love. And, um, you know, you sit down and you say, I'm going to quiet my mind. And there's that cartoon that shows the car going across the, Utah desert, this vast landscape, and the little roadside sign says, um, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> you have a mind, it, does, it tells stories, and it likes, and it dislikes, and so forth. Uh, but underneath that all is, if you've been in the Utah desert, it's magnificent. It's absolutely glorious. When we get out of the thought structure of the mind and let the eyes open and the heart open, there comes this incredible beauty and joy that's possible. E.B. White, essayist, said, I wake in the morning torn between the desire to save the world and to savor it. Um, and saving the world isn't enough. The world doesn't need you to save it. That would be pretty egotistical. It needs you to care for it, contribute to peace. But it equally needs us to savor it. Despair is a greater deceiver than hope. It really fools us. And the world is too beautiful and gloriously magnificent for despair. You read about Rumi, the poet. There's an enormous generosity and humor in his work. Fresh, wild moments within a profound peace. Drunken lyrics dissolving within a starry clarity. Spontaneous pleasure and discipline dancing together. And this is possible for us. And when we meditate, it's like, you know, turn off the news. You already know the story. You don't only need to watch. You could skip, you know, some months and you'd kind of get the same old, it's just reruns. You know that. <laughs> it is. Turn off the news and go for a walk. Turn off the news and put on Mozart. Go by the ocean. Know that André Gide, the French author, philosopher, André Gide says... Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. And so there is something about this. Not you know we we're so loyal to our suffering. <laughs> we are, you know, and we need compassion in this world. As I've said, it's terribly important. But at the same time, it's not the end of the story. Um, speaking of stories, which shall I pick? Ah. I'm an artist. And when my daughter was born, after a difficult labor, we had an emergency cesarean operation. Um, we were very worried. I was there at the hospital. I remember talking with the doctor about what I did for a living. I said, I'm an artist, and the doctor confided in me. I said, I wish I'd been an artist, actually a musician, because I love to play the concert piano. Later, after my wife had the delivery and the doctor came out with the good news that she was fine and I had a brand new baby girl, we're standing there, and I received the news. Another doctor walked up to the physician who'd just completed the cesarean surgery, delivered my child, and said, excuse me, doctor, I just want to tell you, you performed brilliantly in there. It was an honor to assist you. And I turned to him and I said, Now tell me the truth. You've just brought a new life in the world, saved another one, and you've had one of your colleagues tell you it was an honor to be in your presence. 
For heaven's sake, can you honestly say you wish you'd been a musician? The doctor grinned and nodded and said, yeah, it went pretty well in there. We both laughed and he said, and I know exactly why, too. Because this morning I got up early and for an hour I played Chopin at the piano. (laughs) And there's something so important about our capacity for appreciation to uh, allow for our joy and to see the happiness in others. And I tell people when they meditate that sometimes rapture will come. There's 25 kinds of rapture in the Buddhist psychology. You know, we've got Western psychology. There's 25 forms of anxiety and depression. (laughs) In Buddhist psychology, there are 25 forms of rapture. And when well-being and joy starts to arise... Let yourself smile. Let yourself laugh. Let your body be filled with it. Let your senses open. People will come on retreat and they'll do walking meditation and they come in, especially at the end. It's like, you know, we, it's, um, people look younger and this great joy opens and they'll say, I was out walking on the grass and I felt like I was two years old again, like this little kid, this beginner's mind, the, the plants, the trees, everything starts to open up, quiet the mind and open the heart, and then you start to catch it from one another. When you're open and you see the joy in another and the, you know, the, the night sky and the turning of the seasons, here we are almost at the winter solstice. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old, another Alison Luderman poem, who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long blonde pigtails and her battered cardboard books. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game, giving and returning, that makes every simple object a holy offering. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And the practice, just like there's a practice of loving kindness, there's a practice of compassion. May you be held in compassion. May your suffering be eased. There's a practice of joy. Picture the happiest person you know or someone that you love a lot and see them at their happiest moment. And then you begin to wish inside, may your joy increase. May your happiness grow. May the causes for your happiness grow. And you do that for them and another, and then you can turn it back on yourself as if they were wishing you well. May your joy grow. May your happiness increase. May, may my own happiness increase. May, my, may the causes of for this happiness. And there comes this beautiful sense of blessing that you are able to bless and to be blessed. You know, and we tend to be a little stingy sometimes with our emotions and appreciation, like, you know, like we're going to run out of love and joy, like it's some little battery in there and you only have so much and then you've got to go plug it in at night again and get some more of it or something like that. But it doesn't work that way. It's not like a little battery. We are actually a channel for the sacred. We're a channel for the energy of the divine that is who we are. And as you love more or as you open the great heart of compassion or as you see the beauty around you and let yourself dwell in the joy of life, it grows. It opens. It's like the channel gets clear and more of it flows through you. And then the last, and I have just a few minutes to speak to it, is the quality of peace, equanimity. And equanimity isn't an indifference. That's the near enemy, detachment, I don't care about things. Equanimity is really the stillness or the peace in the midst of all things, the the still point in the center of the world, of this great turning world, that was the resting place of the Buddha, 
and that's the resting place of every great heart, yours as well. Um, and it's such a mystery. You know, there was this cartoon in the New Yorker, yes, a dark hole in our own galaxy 300 million light years across does make me feel insignificant, but all I have to do is look around at my colleagues and my equanimity is restored. Albert Einstein, where are you, Albert? He says, the most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the source of all true science. And for one whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer stand wrapped in awe is not still really alive, you know. So here we are in this great, incredible mystery that nobody knows. I mean, you, you don't know how you got here. Anybody know for sure? <laughs> Raise your hand. Isn't that phenomenal that we're here? Look at all these people. You'd think somebody would know, right? <laughs> you know? And yet here we are in this mystery of galaxies and stars and you know, a million kinds of beetles on this earth. There are a million species of beetle on this earth. It's phenomenal. How did this all get here? And here we are incarnate all this, the most beautiful thing. Um, And so instead of getting lost in the small sense of self and taking it for granted, there grows a deep sense of trust that we're supposed to be here, that we are, in fact, a part of the web of life of what's called interdependence with all things. And so instead of the small sense of self, the body of fear, there grows this vast sense of space, which is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the space of awareness. The Buddha said you can put a salt, of, a teaspoon of salt in a cup and taste it and it will be very salty. But if you put the ta- same teaspoon of salt in a lake, you can't even taste it. The lake absorbs it all. And speaking of salt, there is in Colorado an artist who made a work called the Salt Monument. And she built this beautiful wooden room structure, 10 feet or more high, like a beautiful room for it. And in the middle of this room, or 15 feet high, in the middle of this room is a 10-foot high um, lucite plastic crystal, the shape of a salt crystal. And in it is 6.5 billion tiny crystals of salt one for each man, woman, child, each person on the earth. Um, And she has it hooked up so that it rotates and turns once every 24 hours the way the earth turns. And she's the priestess, if you will, at the salt monument. Um, And uh, every morning um, she goes and climbs up this ladder and takes a little cup of salt and pours in uh, 250,000 grains of salt, which are for every person that is born or will be born that day. And then every evening before she goes to sleep, she makes a prayer and then draws off from the bottom of it another container of 200,000, slightly smaller container of 200,000 grains of salt for everyone who died that day on this earth. And then around the room are these little jars like, here are all your friends, this tiny little thing of salt, right? And all the people in your neighborhood and all the people you'll meet in your lifetime and then there's all the salt for all those people. Um, And it's really the witnessing of the dance of life itself. And when we have this vast perspective of time and space, there comes an ease and a generosity and a peace not because we remove ourselves from life, but actually because we become part of life. And it's not our responsibility then to fix others, but to love this beautiful world that we're born into. The recitation for the practice of equanimity is that all beings are the heirs of or the recipients of their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. Which is a very kind of amazing statement and rather fierce to say. Um, 
but it means in a most fundamental way that we can love people and care for them and be responsible and care for the injustices of the world and plant the beautiful seeds and so forth. But it's not given for us to control it. We can add our part and do beautiful things and do them where they're necessary as well as we can. But if you think you own it and control it, sorry. It's just now, you don't even own your own body. How about your mind? Okay, no more of those 200 miles of tedious thoughts. Stop it. Does it listen? Okay, don't grow old, you say to your body. I'm not going to get a day older. Does it listen? You know, and then you try and control your children. Ha, you know, or your partners, your lovers, your spouses. See how far that gets you, you know. This is not the reality. This is not the dance. We are traveling with tremendous speed toward a star in the Milky Way, says Bertolt Brecht. A great repose is visible today on the face of the earth. My heart's a little fast. Otherwise, everything's fine. And that everything's fine is the eyes of wisdom and compassion that says there's sorrow and struggle that we have to tend to, and there's birth and there's death, and there's praise and blame and gain and loss, all of these things that make our, be our humanity and that we engage in. But the place of peace is this vast perspective that Einstein spoke of, of awe and mystery. And it's not ours to control. It's ours to love and to enjoy with joy, to bring blessings of loving kindness and compassion to, um, and to remember this noble heart with which we, we are born. And these are really the teachings and the practices that make it possible for us to live from our Buddha nature. So let's sit for a moment. O nobly, born, <clears throat> o nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. The great heart of compassion and wisdom and love, joy, is yours. It is within you. one or two very brief announcements and a tiny chant and we'll go out into the autumn winter evening Um, Emily needs a ride to North Berkeley anybody going over to the east North Berkeley who could give her a ride Emily would you meet this person up here right after that would be good Um, again next week we'll be we'll share some snacks and slides and some Metta, loving-kindness practice, a little bit of a Dharma talk, and a little bit of a celebration at the end of the year. Um, Thank you for your kind attention and generosity in many, many ways to support this beautiful place for yourself and others. And so the last thing is just to end with a chant. Um, In India, when you meet someone, the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to bow to or honor. And I'd like us to simply chant it nine times tonight. And as you do, you can feel what you want to bow to, your own good nature, to the beauty of another that you think of, to the suffering of another that needs your care and compassion to some place in the world that you want to offer your respects or your concerns. So. Na mo na
seasons, darkness into light, all of this be filled with blessings. Thank you. Drive politely out there. It's lots of cars and it's crowded.